stories to you. Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. This session, Man Up, was recorded at our 2022 festival and features Lech Blaine, Brendan Cowell and Brandon Jack. Your host is Nick Milligan. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the session called Man Up. Before we begin, I, uh, on behalf of the festival, acknowledge that we are meeting on the unceded land of the Awabakal and Waramai peoples. We recognise and respect their cultural heritages, heritage, beliefs and continuing relationship with the land and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be. I'd also like to extend a warm welcome to any First Nations people who are joining us today. A little bit of housekeeping, as you may be aware if you've been to other sessions, we're not doing the, uh, the, the taking questions at the end of the sessions as we normally would. This is to uh, diminish the risk of spreading COVID. So uh, if you do have questions for the authors, I would encourage you to ask them when you buy their book after the show. Straight after the session, uh, they will be heading straight downstairs. I'm not speaking uh, euphemistically. The bookshop is on the bottom story. Uh, yeah, like I said, feel free to ask some questions because these gentlemen are nothing if not questionable. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're <not> <laughs> I, was, I was just distracted by that. The lady started taking the photo and because I'm an actor, I'm like, you oh, know, but I just kind of leaned into that. <laughs> Is so that the best side? Question because I'm like, hang on, fucking better get this right. Um, what did you say? I just, I just said you guys were questionable individuals. Oh, I am. No, no. <laughs> just you. I was tiring you all with the same. All brush. men are. I can't. Yeah, that's oh, right, it. Yeah, sorry. yeah. I don't, um, it's not yeah, a joke. We'll be signing books, won't we? Yes, that's it. Yeah, ask us anything. <laughs> uh, I'll remind you at this juncture to um, please turn your phones to silent. But you are encouraged to be all over the socials with uh, photos, content, tweets, all, all the rest of it. The official hashtag is NWF2022. My name is Nick Milligan. I'm a writer based here in Newcastle and apparently the obvious choice to host a discussion about masculinity. We have our three fabulous authors with us here. Uh, Brandon Jack is a musician and writer currently at the Sydney Morning Herald who comes from an elite sporting family. Through buckets of blood, sweat and tears, Brandon worked his way into the Sydney Swans first grade team on 28 occasions hence the name of his book. That's it there. It's not a typical sporting memoir. It's not the requisite ghost-written biography uh, put out by a retired 300-game Hall of Famer. It's not a dry retelling of memorable sporting moments. It's the perspective and the more common perspective of a fringe first grader, the highs and devastating lows. It's a deconstruction of obsession, an examination of where an obsession can come from and how it can become destructive and unhealthy, an addiction of its own. The book is deeply personal and has the intimacy of a diary entry. In fact, there's even some diary entries within its pages. Please welcome Brandon Jack. <laughs> On the end, we have Lech Blaine. He's a city-based writer originally from Toowoomba, Queensland. We won't hold that against him. His memoir is called Car Crash. A simple title for a stark and at times confronting account of the fallout from a devastating accident. As a 17-year-old, Lech jumped in a car with six other mates. Uh, there wasn't alcohol or drugs involved, but the driver lost control of the car 
and had a head-on collision with another vehicle. Three of the boys in the car died and two were left in comas. Leck walked away from the accident with minimal physical injuries, but this book documents, uh, was very far from unscathed by what happened. The book is a story of healing, media scrutiny, family strain, guilt and recovery. It's very much a story for our times. It must be said, and I don't want to put anyone off reading the book, but the account that opens the book of the accident itself is visceral and harrowing and written in a way that only someone who's been in an accident of that magnitude could tell it. On the front cover, Tim Winton accurately describes it as a brave and unsettling account, and I think he's on the money there. Please welcome Lech Blaine. <laughs> Brendan Cowell is an acclaimed writer of screenplays, stage plays and prose. His credits include the play Ruben Guthrie, an examination of Australia's relationship to alcohol, which Brendan himself adapted to the screen. He also wrote episodes of The Slap and Love My Way. As an actor, he's appeared in numerous films and television series, such as Game of Thrones, in which he had a memorable dust-up with Theon Greyjoy, and has spent the last few years travelling to New Zealand to shoot a low-budget indie called Avatar 2. My favourite performance of Brendan's is in a criminally underrated film called Noise. It's currently on stand. I highly recommend you check it out. Brendan's also a Cronulla Sharks diehard, so I suspect he travelled to Newcastle this morning a little smug after Friday night's result. <laughs> we were only Sharks undies. Uh, Plum is Brendan's second novel. It tells the story of a fictional Cronulla Sharks legend, Peter the Plum Lum, who at the age of 49, having somewhat successfully navigated life post-football, begins to suffer the effects of long-term brain injury, the consequences of thousands of head knocks and concussions throughout his sporting career. As an aside, I should mention that uh, the nature of brain damage as a result of contact sport has become an increasingly larger discussion. And at the University of Newcastle, there's a lot of uh, amazing research happening. And of course, they have the sports concussion clinic. So some great stuff happening here locally. Plum is at first reluctant to change his lifestyle, but ultimately goes on a fascinating journey, one that leads him to poetry and self-expression, and in a Dickensian way, some visitations from the ghosts of iconic writers. Please welcome the author of Plum, Brendan Cowell. <laughs> Brendan, uh, Plum is at once a, an immensely likeable character and he's also rather frustrating at times. His response to his diagnosis isn't as uh, immediate as one might hope for. I know in preparing to write the book you spoke to a lot of ex-footballers, including the, uh, the unofficial mayor of Newcastle, Sir Joey Johns. I was interested, uh, interested to know what sort of insights did you get from those ex-footballers in terms of their, their attitude towards the topic of, of concussion? Uh, yeah, thanks. And uh, yeah, it was kind of a two-pronged approach. I mean, one is if you're gonna deal with um, something um, that ha is having the impact that concussion is on sport. Now you've got to you've got to treat it with due respect. So I spoke to um, a couple of neuroscientists, and especially one, Chris Levi, who kind of became my unofficial consultant throughout the whole um, writing of the book and researching the book. And I actually went and sat down with him as if I was Peter Lum with the symptoms that I had, and we went through the whole process um, because the truth is so much. Um, more of a better writer than I am, you know, and also I had to get it right. But um, I'm friends with a lot of rugby league players. I grew up playing rugby league. Um, 
and then I made the transition to the um, emotional pain of the arts from the physical pain of sport. Um, at about 15, 16, I was like, the guys got massive and I went, I'm going into the theatre. <laughs> um, but Andrew's, you know, he's, he's a really close friend of mine. He has been since um, Love My Way he called up, got in touch with me after he saw Love My Way and said, that character you play, he's like me. Um, and then we started hanging out. Um, and uh, yeah, he, I give him books to read and he, he's an avid reader. And, um, and when I told him about this, he goes, well, you've got to fucking get it right. And, and I felt like it was kind of cathartic for him. Um, he'd call me driving from Brisbane to the Gold Coast, Majorelle, we'd go for a walk um, or a swim or whatever. And he'd, he'd just tell me, you know, what it's like. And a lot of that stuff, the return to innocence with the seizures, and stuff that, you know, the hiding in the dark and, and the sensitivity and, and the fear and the kind of drifting out into the other world stuff, that all kind of came from conversations with him and, and, and several other football players that, whose names I won't mention yet. Uh, some of the players are reluctant to kind of deal with the diagnosis as Plum, do you think, or was that just more for the purposes of a story? I mean, the book is obviously less interesting if he merely changes his ways and... Is, is it kind of Plum's response typical, you think, of, of a certain demographic of ex-footballer? Yeah, I don't think any of them go into it excitedly. I mean, it's, it's terrifying. And now that the information's out there, a lot of them are saying they don't want their kids to play the game, which is um, a kind of ultimatum that Plum faces when he goes to Parramatta for his kids' jersey flag grand final. And he finally go, looks at his son getting coat hanging and goes, and he has to, you know, um, leave you know, the game that gave him everything. Um, and also, but Peter Lum, you know, he's, he's just been running through brick walls his whole life and he's charming and he's talented and he's tough and he's, he's done it that way. And all of a sudden, this thing that, that is thrust upon him says, that strategy's not gonna work, Peter, anymore. Also, you know, you can't keep covering up the pain with, with booze, etc., and you can't keep hiding. You're gonna have to get emotional, you're gonna have to, um, face up to this thing that might take your life and, that, and you know, maybe do what's commonly known as, as change. Um, and he don't like that, you know, because he's never had to. He just goes that way. He's a forward, you know. He's 49 years old. Why was that the right age to make the character in terms of what you wanted to explore both within him and the story itself? Yeah, I don't know. I, th I also think it was that part of rugby league players where it was just coming out of that time where rugby league players were butchers and, you know, you, when I started going to the footy, you'd see, you know, Phil um, Jenkins uh, from, you know, Warringah Meats and this guy was a, a constable and it was just around the professionalisation, which I think you could probably talk a lot to as well, Brandon, of, of, of players can just be professional football players. So I wanted him to kind of just be in that era where you were kind of mythologised, you could just be a football player. But also I thought it was a really interesting age to go you could have a, like a second half of life, like a complete second half that does not look like the first half. It's really possible. And I think he's going, God, I either kind of burn this one out in what it's looked like already, or, I, you, know, you know, I face that really uncomfortable note. You know, resistance to change is what hurts, not change. It's the resistance, and he's resisting. And if he just turns around and faces that way, there's this whole second chapter. And I think 49's a really 
interesting age where you can just keep doing what you're doing and chiselling away or you can really do a 180 and see some, you know, different flowers. With, in terms of the characters he comes into contact with, there's a lot of diversity. He, uh, he befriends, there's a, there's a trans character, there's a, a person that uh, comes out as gay, there's a wheelchair-bound user that he, the, uh, befriends as well. What was the intention to sort of have him come in contact with all these sort of people with different experiences in life? Was it to kind of challenge his, his outlook a little bit? Yeah, also inspirations of people that have faced change and just gone headlong into it, which is, you know, towards the end of the book, he kind of looks and goes, well, if they can, I can, you know. But I also saw a wheelchair-bound poet in New York um, recite a poem called You Swap With Me, I'll Swap With You, which brought me to tears, which is her saying, we all have the same amount of pain. I'll swap your pain with my pain. And, I, and it just absolutely tore me apart, um, which so often poets do when they read their own work. Um, and... And that was what Peter made Peter go home and write his first poem. And they become friends. He also doesn't have friends with females. You know, he doesn't know how to do it. You know, it's either sexual or family or something like that. And when it blows up, it's over. And uh, Bridget becomes his friend in this book. He's like, probably his greatest achievement is a female friendship, you know. Um, but also, yeah, Trent, a, a member of... Um, who's very close to me, um, has transitioned over recent years and, and just watching the courage and, uh, that that takes and, and how suddenly it all just makes sense. It just everything falls into place of somebody who's fighting against the body that they're in and suddenly they're in the body that they're in, you know. And also, you know, talking about that second chance at life, like when you're closed, you only see people who agree with you you only see other versions of you when you're a closed person. But when you open up, you'll see that Cronulla has, you know, African UFC coaching priests in recovery, um, British wheelchair-bound poets who came here 20 years ago and, um, and, and trans barmen. And all of a sudden, Peter's like, fuck, look at, like, the variety of people in life. And they're just like him, you know. But when you're closed, you're just at the pub with other guys who do the same as you, and you say the same shit year after year. And it's all you're gonna do. It's all good. All that. You know what I mean? And that's you just keep going around in that circle. And then you open yourself up to life, all of a sudden, hang on, I've got stuff coming at me. And suddenly, the poet in Peter, which is, you know, a poet is an open chasm, um, everything starts coming in, filling him up. At what point in the writing process did you decide to... I don't know if it's a spoiler to name don't, them necessarily. Don't do the ending. <laughs> no, I was more okay, asking about the, visit, the visitations he has. Oh, yeah, that's famous. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe it's a spoiler to reveal, because it is a nice surprise when some of them show up. But like I said, it's almost like in a Christmas carol kind of way. At what point in the writing did you decide to, to use that as a device? Well, it was... Um, you know, poetry, when I was 12, 13, I think, and in kind of a dark frame of mind, quite bullied, quite lost in Cronulla as an expressive young male, poetry, I'd go and sit in this cave and write poems and it, and it saved me. And so I wanted to get back to writing something that reminded me of why I wrote. I'd been doing Avatar, had a bit of money. I didn't have to take an episode of television. I was like, I want to write something that's really important for me. And for me being a writer, remember, why am I doing this writing thing? 
And that was poetry. So I went, who's the last guy in the world that would write a poem? And that's where Peter Lum came out of. Who's the last guy to be saved by poetry? A canola shark's thug. What if he becomes a fucking amazing poet? And then I just went, well, that's a book. Um, and that got me through five months of COVID in London in my basement flat with mice in it, you know, coming out of a breakup, thinking this is the end of the world. I, he held my hand. And, and I thought also, with his brain being bashed open and the corridors and the doors flung open of his mind and he's kind of in his seizures, he's drifted out into the next world, there's no reason why Bukowski can't come in, you know. And so that's how it kind of started. But it was really, he was in the bar in Parramatta after leaving. This is not a spoiler, it's chapter three, I think, of nine. So we'll just go that far. Because um, everyone's going to buy it after this. Bukowski, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was just sitting at the bar and, and, and having this drink after he'd escaped his son's grand final. And a guy said, hey, cock, you know, and it was Bukowski. And then I thought, well, I better have five poets. <laughs> it's great that... Peter doesn't know who these people are, really. That's sort of he's got part, no of, idea. part of the joy, but he doesn't realise he's talking, no. having a I mean, with he, he moves in with Sylvia Plath. He's got no <laughs> idea who she is. <laughs> yeah, no idea. She just turns up, yeah. yeah. Um, Lek, in your memoir, we follow you as you work through uh, social expectations, trauma, guilt, shame, and there's a whole gamut of emotions there that, that comes out of the, the ordeal that you went through. Uh, for a lot of this journey... It seems you're kind of hamstrung by, I guess, I think you've said this before, that you sort of projected onto the situation how you felt you should behave as a bloke after what you went through. Was that completely you sort of projecting on the situation or was there outwardly people sort of telling you to man up, to quote the name of the session? Uh, gr growing up, I did, uh, definitely. Like, I grew up in a pub, so I was surrounded by the blokes sitting at the bar that um, Brennan was talking about. And I, um, my, and I write about it in the book, my first cousin was a guy called Alfie Langer, who was probably the main rival to Andrew Johns for about 10 years. And so, um, funnily enough, a lot of the, the stuff that uh, is happening in Plum, like, probably fed through my life as well. I had older brothers who were um, gun rugby league players, and, and I was always just an absolutely shocking athlete. Uh, and so, I, I felt a real uh, visceral sense of disappointment about that. And so, uh, weirdly, even though I, I didn't really have any uh, macho tendencies, I uh, overcompensated for the fact that I was such a shit athlete by uh, creating this really uh, over-the-top persona as like a, a bit of a shit stirrer and a larrikin. And, and um, so, like Alan Langer, but without any of the, uh, any of the, yeah, any of the, any of the athletic prowess. Uh, and, and, then, and that obviously, well, it got me into trouble with the accident, but like all through high school um, and certainly even primary school probably, I was vacillating between these two uh, personas in terms of like who I was privately, which was someone who, you know, loved reading and loved writing and was quite cr creative and quite, quite sensitive. And then, um, yeah, as I said, when I, I remember rocking up at St Mary's in grade five and that was... Jonathan Thurston's old um, high school, he played in the first footy team with my brother, Stephen, and so I, I vividly remember going from being this uh, really youngest child who 
was constantly crying, constantly, my brother's constantly hanging shit on me because I was um, such a wuss. And then getting to St. Mary's and, and, and going through this experience where I, I realised that I wouldn't be able to get away with um, such open displays of emotion because I would just get uh, absolutely hounded. And so I, I, I went from being this really uh, emotional child to being, to by probably the start of high school, I, I don't reckon I would have cried in um, leading up to the accident and I didn't cry after the accident. Like I'd conditioned myself to repress any sort of emotion uh, and to constantly ha have this performance playing out, which was to A, to not show any, any emotion and B, to lighten the mood constantly. And so then this experience happens and it's not like I flicked a switch and decided to tough it out or whatever. I'd just been conditioned to respond the way that I did, which as I said, I, like I, I went to three funerals in two weeks for three of my best friends and didn't cry at any of them. Uh, and, and that was partly, I was so dissociated by this event, but also because I was, I was like consciously trying to project, I, I wanted, you know, people kept on coming up to me and uh, it wasn't that they were saying you need to say, stay strong, like lots of people were saying you, you actually need to show some more emotion, but people were constantly congratulating me about how, um, how, how much I was holding up, and so I sort of fed off that, and, and yeah, it became this, this real, real thing where, I, where I, did, I did feel a pride about how much I was able to bottle that up, and I, I remember actually looking over at one of the other survivors at a funeral and, and seeing him crying, and, um, and it's, like, it sounds awful, but I, I, I remember being a bit like, not that I would ever be, like, shame someone for that situation, but I remember feeling sort of like a, 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 bit, of, a bit of pride about how, how I was, how I was able to like, not how I was able to sort of like, not tough in like a macho way, but like tough that I, I wasn't going to be like a burden on anyone else, and that I that I could be like I, I felt guilty about being alive, and I thought I just didn't want to be a burden, and so yeah, it was all these different factors, and it produced this really bottled up person that I was as a seventeen-year-old. And I guess going through that and dealing with this sort of tension you created for yourself it would have slowed down the the healing process, I suppose, it was ultimately detrimental to you actually processing it in a, in a healthy way yeah it just you know, I, I just didn't process it like partly as i said there was a lot of other stuff going on it was playing out on social media it was playing out in the newspapers i was so traumatized i was so shocked uh my parents had separated like a year earlier and so there was family stuff going on and um mum had a drinking problem and so yeah it wasn't it wasn't just the fact that i was a young man and you know um but it just meant that I, uh, as I said, I, I went through that year just so bottled up and then started to really break down uh, around formal sort of time because my best mate Tim um, had only just come out of a coma and it was becoming increasingly clear that he would be, he would have a disability for life. And so that was the point at which it re like I, I really just started crumbling because uh, I was going to formal, I was going to graduation, you know, you rock up at graduation, there's, a, there's an empty seat there for Tim and we were house captains together, we were best mates. Uh, and so I went down to schoolies and just was a wreck down there, just on the piss constantly, um, but starting to feel really self-destructive, uh, all the telltale sort of signs of, of depression, and then got, got, got back from schoolies, moved down to Brizzy for uni, and I was like, I'm just going to reinvent myself as this really happy, successful person without actually dealing with any of the pre-existing issues. Like, I thought that I'd just move on, and that obviously didn't um, work too well. And then by about a year after the accident, that's when I really started to to go through what, like a textbook case of depression and, uh, and, and yeah, really go, going to a really dark place and then ended up getting arrested for drink driving. Uh, and so I'd grown up around blokes who 
footy players who constantly drink, drunk drove, who glorified that sort of behaviour. So it wasn't just that I was traumatised by the accident. Like I, I, I was po probably someone who would have engaged in that sort of behaviour. But at that point, I was just like it was like a cry for help, and I was uh, in the sort of frame of mind where I didn't really want to um, continue. And then so weirdly, through this really shameful experience, I was in the paper and all that sort of stuff. I had this cathartic. Uh, moment with my dad who was a you know he was a mentor to Alan Langer and he was this tough publican and um ex-footy player and all that sort of stuff and then um he broke down and then I broke down and it was you know it sounds a bit like a Hollywood movie but um what it did was it gave me permission to um actually show some emotion and also he he was really blunt with me and said you're gonna have to go and actually get some help and sort your shit out and like um you're gonna to have to talk to people and you're gonna to have to talk to specialists. Like, and he sort of took that out of my hands and, and because, I'd, because I'd actually you know, put myself in a posi position where I, I could have done to someone else what had happened, you know, I'd seen happen to all these other people in terms of the people that had died, like I, I could have done that to someone else. And so, yeah, I lost, a, um, I, I lost the ability to try and man up or tough it out because I, I legally actually needed to go and get help. And that started this process, which, you know, like I'm, still on in a lot of ways, not just because of the crash in terms of the process of just being able to like open up emotionally regularly is like such a um, valuable skill for anyone to have. Uh, and yeah, it was, um, it was weirdly through that, through, that, through that moment, through that really shameful experience of getting arrested. Brandon, you did uh, an interview with GQ in promoting the book, uh, 28, and you said something to the effect of that you were a little bit hesitant to have the word masculinity appear on the front cover. The tagline is a memoir of football addiction, art, masculinity and love. Could you elaborate a little bit why you're a little bit hesitant to have that word on the cover? Yeah. Um, my own experiences with that word masculinity and, you know, I, I write about it, talk about it openly, but my friends who I think would benefit from reading this book hear the word masculinity and kind of just shivers, you know, I, I can tell they almost cringe at it. Um, and the idea of trying to, to write for a masculine audience, you know, you want the book in their hands, so you don't want to turn them away by preaching too much about this, this new form of masculinity that, that would be really healthy. And so essentially when I first wrote the book, it was a, a series of essays that talked about gender and, and masculinity and, and feminine idea was as well and then I kind of looked at that and thought that no one who should read it will read that um, so I went back to the drawing board and and thought well what do blokes read what do my mates read if they read and it's a it's a it's a footy book it's a, it's a footy memoir um, so that became the the way of sharing my own experiences in a open, honest way, not glorifying them, saying this is pretty ugly stuff that's happened to me that I've been through, um, while also giving the guys I want to read it something that they want to read still. You definitely give a lot of insight into how a, a football club or elite football club operates, uh, not just what the twos and fros of what sort of takes place in the, uh, the team meetings and the feedback the coaches give you, all that sort of thing, but you also depict the social aspects of it in, in very vivid detail. Uh, there's, there's one section that, about a game called Wizards, which is almost um, Caligulan in the way that it plays out. What, what has been the response from your peers in the sporting community who, who have, have read the book? Um, response has been, you know, it's something that 
within a football club, it's almost like this stays inside these four walls. Um, but I've received a lot of promising messages from a lot of former teammates who've taken things from it. Um, and I've just been thinking this kind of whole time, Brendan was talking before about, you know, we talk about concussion and CTE, and I was thinking about my own experiences in a football club and what that was like. And I was an 18-year-old bloke sitting in a room watching our games play back every Monday. We'd watch a review of our games. And the idea of getting knocked out was something that I kind of wanted. I would sit there kind of being like, if a clip of me comes up, going back with the flight, getting knocked unconscious, I'm 10 foot tall in this room right now. So with the, with the kind of discussion now about talking to players about you know, the, the, the health of their brain as they get older, it's bloody hard to get through to young players who all they want to do is play footy, all they want to do is run through a brick wall. So I know we had people come in and talk to us about it, but you're in this environment where that's glorified and that's kind of hero worship of how tough can you be for your teammates. And that's so ingrained into the game as well. Into, you know, we talk about courageous plays and putting your body on the line. And I was, I'll worry about the brain stuff when I'm later. That was my mindset. That was my teammates' mindsets. Um, so being in an elite environment like that, where you all feed into it as well, it's, um, yeah, it, it's an interesting spot to be in at that age. There was, uh, there's lots of, lots of anecdotes in the, in the book I could ask you about. One that jumped out, though, which struck me as being a little bit strange, I wanted to ask you about. There's, you talk about there being a team dinner in which uh, new recruits have to get up in front of the room and give a speech, a detailed speech, about how they lost their virginity to the, to the room. So I wanted to ask you, how did you lose your virginity? No. Um, <laughs> Uh, what <laughs> and then we'll go around the circle. Um, I, actually I, I actually lose my virginity in the book as well. So. I, was, uh, I already know, so yeah, I didn't have to ask you. No, I'm still waiting. But um, why, why was that a practice? What was the point of that? It's a, a professional, like footy club culture. It's the same in local leagues as it is at a professional level, and that was... My first year at the club, um, we had a team dinner, players only, so no coaches there. And all the first year players had to get up and answer a series of questions. And, and one of my questions was to talk about how I lost my virginity. And it, it, was, it wasn't in a way that was kind of to demean the woman um, or anything like that, but it was very much, I felt in front of that group then a real sense of kind of, I, I felt people watching me and I felt that I had to kind of live up to this ideal then. And I remember telling, telling the story, and it was you know, a, a normal fumbling, bumbling 16-year-old story, and sitting back down and kind of having a sense of embarrassment that it wasn't some you know, awesome story that I could you know, gloat about. And the part of it that you know, I'm very ashamed of because I was in that environment, I, I then, two years later, three years later, when I'm 21, now enmeshed in the team, I'm the one that's putting it on the young guys, the same sort of stuff. So when I'm finally, you know, kind of clawing my way up and climbing the hierarchy, I'm making these young guys go through what I went through to, to make them... It, it's an odd way to try and make somebody feel included, and it's an odd thing to want to be included by being picked out like that. Um, it, it just shows how culture just perpetuates. The holders of culture are the ones that then enforce it the next time around, so, yeah. 
as I mentioned earlier, some of the sections of your book are, in fact, uh, lifts from your from your diary entries of that time, and it seems you kept pretty detailed uh, journals. Uh, one bit I wanted to ask you about, I think it's a, it's a moment in which it looks like you're going to be playing first grade against Frio, and you, you're listing all of your goals that you want to achieve if you get to play first grade. And one of the things you write is uh, hit Ryan Crowley, or Crowley. Uh, and I, th I just, just I sort of took that sort of euphemistically, but then you give a diary entry of what happened in the game and you, you do play first grade against Freeman. I think the Swans win. Uh, you do hit Ryan. Uh, you, you give away a penalty. He, he calls you a fucking idiot. And then your coach completely roasts you and hooks you off the field. Why did you feel the need to hit Ryan Crowley? Yeah. So, um, you know, if, uh, Ryan Crowley is a, is a, was a very famous player for Fremantle and he was a tagger. So his role was to be a pain in the ass to whoever he was playing on. He didn't care about touching the ball. He just wanted to stop his opponent from touching the ball. And the kind of context for this story is Ryan Crowley played on my older brother the year before. So my older brother, Kieran Jack, was a very, uh, very successful football player with the Swans. And Crowley did a number on Kieran and Kieran had a pretty bad game. And I remember just sitting in the crowd watching that game being like, I hate Ryan Crowley. And then we get the chance the next year, we play them again, and I'm in the team this time, and I'm thinking about, he got one on my brother, I want to get him. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to belt him, because nobody belted him when he was on my brother that time. And I went in, that's how I got the game. I went into John Longmire's office the week of that game and sat down there at 19 years old, and I said, let me play, I want to hit Crowley. Like, I want to I send a statement. I, to I told the coach before the game that I wanted to, you know, put him on his ass, and that help me get a game and then yeah and then I do it in the game and um, give away a free kick because I did it a bit too much and get pulled off the field and get the phone it's never a good thing if you're a player on the bench and you get given the phone because it's the coach who's not happy with you um, I, I kind of held it away because horse was yelling at me a fair bit um, said some expletives to me and then yeah joked about it on Monday but one of those situations where towing the line on the field, you know? You don't want to jeopardise your team, but you also want to stick up for your team. So there's more to avenge your brother than, I suppose, earning a badge of honour amongst your teammates, would you say? Ah, uh, both. Definitely yeah. both. Yeah, okay. Brendan, you are... Uh, in Ruben Guthrie, you explore our relationship to alcohol uh, fairly honestly and relentlessly, it's pr and probably uh, in the most sort of transparent way since perhaps Wake and Fright, the classic Australian movie. Um, there's some overlap with Plum. I think you definitely touch on our binge drinking culture and, and the, the way the sort of blokes bond over that. You obviously have thought about it to some extent. I know you've spent some time in, in England in the last few years. and I've always sort of thought that we in inherited our, our heavy drinking culture from the motherland. Uh, do, we, do Australians take it to a next level or is that sort of where it comes from, that sort of British culture? I don't know. I think like, you know, like everything, you know, the English invent stuff and then we show them how to do it, you know. <laughs> and I think we've done the same with alcoholism, you know, that they kicked it off. We're like, no, this is how you roll. Um, the same with the cricket and... Um, no, it's... Over there, you know, I think they're, they're a little less health conscious and that's probably because the sun's not out. Um, as much, you know, and, and here there's kind of vanity and people have a kind of um, a trickle-down effect of American culture more so here about, you know, bettering yourself, which is not so much ingrained in 
in England, you know. So if you give up drinking over there, people are like, oh, we lost another one. Oh, well. You know, whereas here, people, it's okay to better yourself in a lot of ways. But um, what Ruben was dealing with was just a funny grey area of, of binge drinking and the kind of when you become an idiosyncratic notion of yourself, which Ruben is, he is the party guy, he is that guy. Um, and he kind of loves that. How do you stop being the character you've created for yourself? Um, and I guess Peter Lum is, is stuck in that same um, facade of himself as well. Like, he's the toughest guy on and off the field. He's terrifying in the pub. You would want to owe him $100, you know. And on the field, get out of the way, and he's loyal as anything. Um, how do you acquiesce to, to softness and, and how do you live a balanced life after that? And, you know, alcohol is an amazing invention for, for numbing things and making you forget about things, but those things don't go away. They just kind of bubble up and, you know, I, uh, I really need to write a romance novel after this, don't I? <laughs> Stop There's bringing up all these there. things no one wants to talk about. Um, but, you know, I, I do think for Peter Lum and Ruben, the fact that there's a conversation going on, um, they're looking at it, is like, you know, it's the same with concussion in rugby league. Like, are, are they getting it right? They're trying, they're looking, they're talking. They're asking, and I think, you know, whether you are, you aren't, whether you should, you shouldn't, um, with drinking, the fact that men might actually begin to go, you know, how much is too much, and, um, you know, the, the, the stuff that goes bad with men is when they're in, you know, collect, co collective groups and alcohol's invited in. That's when men do stuff that's out of character, and that's where drinking, you know, and all that stuff... Um, kind of rises up that wouldn't happen when you're on your own. You know what I mean? So there's something in there. As, as we mentioned, Plum uh, starts expressing himself through poetry and some of his poems feature in, in the book. Uh, of course, they're not Plum's poems. They're actually your poems that you, you've written for the character. And I wanted to ask you, what was it like... I know, you, I know you write poetry for yourself, but what was it like writing poetry from the perspective of a character, and not just a, a poet character, but also a a sort of a novice poet in some ways. Like, was that a challenge? Well, I, I mean, I think I am a novice poet and I think I'm a novice writer. Like, I, I'm a novice actor. I've got no idea what I'm doing, you know, and I've never had an acting lesson, I've never had a writing lesson. I, I re I've learned everything from watching and from reading and, and I think something that held me back from writing was, oh, I'm, I'm from Cronulla, I'm not, I didn't, excel i didn't have an excellent education do i really get to write you know and i i thought i had to be a lot more in intellectual with the cord jacket and the pads here and read the russian i've read it, some of the russians now but you know what i mean like i didn't think i was allowed to write um but then when i started watching theater and when i came out of university is david williamson's and things and i went there's a voice missing here about my people and the you know the anger that's around and the rage and especially in men this inexplicable rage that was in the suburbs and in the city that i went i could probably write a play about that and then suddenly people were like write another one um and i realized it wasn't you didn't need a license to write you needed a voice and you needed to be able to kind of go for it and 
and risk everything in, in, in what it is to write truthfully. Um, and I, I loved writing for Plum because I got to write in a suburban vernacular of a man who's not great with words um, and use the rhythms of words because, you know, watching rugby league, watching a great player play rugby league, it is poetic, you know, and they do call it poetry emotion and the theatre of it and all that stuff. So he gets it. He gets what it's like to move between a gap and put a bloke through a hole and, you know, left, right. And so it was kind of like that, um, but using basic language. It was, you know, and those limitations are so good for a writer, you know. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about that because obviously it's, it is written in the third person, but it, like aside from, from Plum's dialogue, it is very much written sort of from his voice, isn't it? Even though it's not always his voice. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's... Absolutely some poetic licence, which there is with the whole book, because it's kind of preposterous in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it's rooted in quite brutal uh, realism. He has a poem uh, called This Is A Letter To My Mouth um, in the middle of the book, which is kind of my favourite poem. And he's, it's kind of like an amends. It's kind of an apology to what he's put in his mouth uh, his whole life. <laughs> and what's come out of his mouth is how it kind of ends as he starts to get some... Um, self-awareness towards the end of the poem so the poems are helping him but you know and he starts writing about simple things and calippos and sunny days and training and and then they become kind of more and more personal and and then in the end quite epic you know as you've probably gathered there's quite a bit of thematic overlap with these three books despite one being fiction and two being memoirs it's not just the background of sport but one of the sort of aspects that looms large is Relationships between father and sons, uh, the tensions and miscommunications and the influences that fathers uh, have on us, good or bad. Brennan, I wanted to ask you, at what point in the development of the character and the story did you realise that uh, Plum not only had a son, but a, Plum, a, a son that's also playing professional sport and on the brink of following in his footsteps? Yeah, and there's another poem in there called Have You Ever Had a Son? Um, that's probably his most, um, I guess... It's the poem that probably scares him the most. But, yeah, I think I spoke a bit about it earlier. Um, and, you know, speaking to Andrew Johns about it as well, like his son's going to play. His son's got the gift. And it's like, you know, and he's talking about, you know, having weight divisions in, in younger leagues and stuff like that. And all these conversations are brilliant, um, I, I think. But, yeah, he the main thing, I think, with... Um, Peter Lum and his son is that P Peter Lum's dad, Albert, ran. Whenever it got tough, he ran, he took off. He didn't know where his dad was. Um, and then he turned up with these big gestures. When shit gets tough between him and his son, Lum wants to run. He's got it. He's genetically inherited his father's male instinct to piss off when the going gets tough from relationships, from the tough stuff from emotions and it takes every single you know part of a particle in his body to turn around and wrench himself towards his son and go I, I'm going to try not to do that. It's <laughs> so on the field he never never ran of course that's no. the great irony that yeah. Field, yeah and that's kind of a notion of kind of male bravery that's coming through now is that you know I'm sure Brandon's book which I can't wait to read is 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 speaks about is like Breaking your jaw and coming off without a complaint is bravery. And now I think my book's suggesting maybe going, I'm a bit suicidal, I can't stop drinking, I'm having an affair, 
I'm fucked up, I'm scared, I've got concussion, whatever it is, saying that to someone is the new bravery. Lek, your uh, father is, is a great character in your memoir and you go into a lot of detail about your relationship with him. Uh, he was a, a serial publican, pub to pub, and uh, had, a bit of a, had quite a colourful life. He's certainly no longer with us. But I wanted to ask you, uh, what aspect of your father did you most want to convey in, in your memoir and what do you hope is people's takeaway or perception of him once they've read it? Yeah, it, it's... Um, super interesting because when I first started writing the memoir, I didn't think I'd actually write much about my parents. Uh, it, I, I thought it would just be a straight memoir about the car accident and then, yeah, the, the aftermath. And so I, I wrote it in lots of different stages and I'd other stuff. I was running a motel in Bundaberg, which I actually inherited from him, which was one of the greatest piss takes that he ever um, performed. Because it, and it started it derailed the writing process. But then as I was, like, running this motel and stopping and starting, and then I was gradually... Uh, going into more detail about my parents and, and, and who they were. And I think when I first started writing the memoir, they were caricatures. I was writing it from a literary perspective and I didn't really see my parents as being literary material. It's like the suburb suburban thing or like re regional Australians. Like I didn't really see them as being belonging to um, a literary affair, uh, which is bullshit, obviously. And then um, they ended up, uh, it, uh, I think especially Dad... Um, in, for people who read the book, he's generally um, the character that people gravitate to towards the most. Like he, he, um, he's totally different to me in a lot of ways. He's some, in some ways, maybe a little bit similar. But yeah, he, certainly his vernacular uh, is completely different from the vernacular that I'm surrounded by in like the literary or in the media world. And so, when you introduce that vernacular, uh, it, it's both can be really funny, but it, it's also quite beautiful as well. Like, it, there's a there's a real um, poeticism to to it as well, and and so I think that um, yeah, it just it just clashes so clearly with the way that I like even the way that I think or write, and and yeah, I, I I'm I'm so glad that I had that bit of extra time to probably come to terms with who I was a bit that I was confident enough to to really do justice to them as characters and especially to Dad and yeah. Brendan, you say in your book that you've spent your life being asked about your old man. Um, for those that aren't aware, uh, Brendan's father is Gary Jack, who's a, a bona fide rugby league legend. Uh, there's, a, there's a chapter about your dad in the book that's deeply personal. Um, you, you say that you're essentially estranged from him and haven't had a relationship with him for about seven years. Did you always plan to have a chapter in there about your old man, or did it come later? That, uh, writing about my family was the one thing I, I didn't want to do. Um, and there's a lot of context there, which is probably hard to sum up now. It's the longest chapter in the book. But, you know, growing up, all I ever wanted to do was to be like my dad. Um, I've got two older brothers, and we all wanted to be the fullback for Australia because my dad was the fullback for Australia. Like, that's what we wanted to do. Um, and football was my way of, you know, getting a sense of identity and also his approval which is something that I, I sound so obvious saying it now, like you're born into a household of footballers, playing football gives you that sense of family. But I had to write this book to figure that out for myself. It was, it was kind of there, but I, I hadn't really clicked with it. Um, so to, to write about my relationship with my father, you know, and, and I'm 27 now, and for 
up until very recently, throughout my 20s, I hadn't spoken to my father. Um, there was a few incidents that had gone on. We had a few blues as well. We got physical at times. So very, um, it does bear the scars of masculinity, that relationship big time. We have our different versions of it. Um, but for me to, to reflect on, you know, the love that I do have for my father, even though we haven't spoken in a long time, and, and to find a sense of peace in our relationship um, is something that I, I didn't plan on doing. I was, I was running away from it, and thankfully I addressed it. You know, it's on the pages, but it's in, in seeing a psychologist as well and reaching out and getting help, because I, I don't think you can write purely for therapy. I, I don't think that on its own is enough. So reaching out, talking to people, and having open conversations has been a a super important part of that process. It sounds like you worked out quite a bit just by writing it down as well. I've got a question for all, for all three of you. Uh, obviously, the, the, the discussion about masculinity and, and the toxic nature of it at times has become increasingly louder uh, in recent years. Uh, the fact that you guys sort of each have written this book, moving through that sort of the, that, the current cultural climate surrounding the, the talk around masculinity, did, did that has that discussion informed the way you approached your books, your ca the, the characters, or the way you write the, the true-to-life details? Brenda, do you want to go first? Oh, you want to go first? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, look, in a lot of ways, I think the term toxic masculinity kind of perpetuates um, the very thing that it's accusing. Um, it's because it just brands it as this thing that exists. Whereas if you go from a case-by-case -case basis, um, there's such a thing as human behaviour and there's trauma and there's a whole bunch of stuff that leads up to people, you know, uh, doing something they regret. And, and I think there's also, I think, got human behaviour because I think men and women uh, are both capable of the same stuff and whatever a woman's doing right now, there's a bloke doing something similar and vice versa. You know, we're humans. We, we're flawed. Um, but, no, I, I kind of, you know, when the book came out and... These things that are picked out of my book are like a suburban tale of toxic masculinity. And, and they're two things I didn't realise I was writing about. Um, because I, I think a lot of people live in the suburbs. Like maybe heaps of Australia. <laughs> like, and yet it's kind of fetishistic to be writing about it. Where are you meant to write about? Just these kind of nice roads in the city where people write books, I'd, I'd, I just thought it was very strange and kind of condescending that a suburban tale is seen as a kind of tourism, whereas, you know, I was brought up in the suburbs, my friends were from the suburbs, I just imagined that this was the kind of heart of Australia in a lot of ways. And when you go to write, a bloke, write about a bloke, suddenly you're writing about masculinity and maybe you're just writing a story about a bloke. You know, um, his masculinity, I think, is examined in my book by the fact that he's finding it very hard to not do what he's always done. And his group of mates who are there with him the whole time, I kind of raise the question, are they there when push comes to shove? You know, can the blokes that you punt with and drink with and go to Thailand with and, you know, were there at your 21st and your 40th and held your kid and all that stuff, are they there when you go, I'm scared? Um, and I was more interested in that than toxic masculinity because I'm not exactly sure I've seen someone do toxic masculinity. I've seen a, ma a mate in a bad place act out on the piss and stuff and I've seen blokes do stuff, but I can usually tell you why they're doing it, you know, and that's because of, you know... 
um, human behaviour and pressure. Like, I mean, the Me Too thing would have been going on in the background while you're writing this memoir, of course. I mean, does that, does that conversation have any influence on the way you approach the material in the memoir? Not really. Like, it, 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 um, it certainly made... Because a big, a big part of, of, like, a lot of my behaviour, like, as, as a teenager and, and all that stuff about my personality was derived from the stuff about sex in terms of... Uh, performativity and the uh like growing up i was the internet and stuff so like i was exposed to porn at a pretty young age and um, i had older brothers who had girlfriends and so i was constantly trying to live up to them from a younger age than what you probably like than what i was actually physically capable of like uh, doing anything so um yeah it, it was something that i think that i always would have explored anyway because it was so central to my sense of insufficiency as a as a teenager um, and it, it drove so much of all the other stuff that was going on, and um, yeah, it, it, it probably took the um, the process of therapy after the accident that you know, like, to unpack a lot of the neuroses that I had about sex because I, they're just conversations that I never would have had otherwise because they're they're just not conversations that you generally have as a 18 year old bloke uh, or or a lot of people probably don't don't have of both genders probably don't have of, of all genders probably don't have like. Um, really honest conversations about that sort of stuff. So, um, so yeah, it, it, it wasn't like a, a central driving force or, or change anything. I, I think it always would have been like a, a really important thing to explore with, within the book. And it must be said quickly, I mean, it's revealed sort of towards the end of the book, well, not revealed, but you say that your therapy that you, you went through took place in front of a, a live audience of, of students, which I thought was wild. So that must have been, uh, yeah, quite an experience. Uh, Brandon, uh, you seem to really actively deconstruct the psyche of, of football players and, and young men. Uh, was the Me Too conversation factoring it at all when, the way you approached it? With, um, you know, I, I grew up on a, a steadfast diet of um, football players' biographies. Like the first book I read was Gordon Tallis's Raging Bull. And I think all of those books are a study of masculinity in themselves. They are. Um, the fact that I'm probably, that it's on the front of the book there and it's a bit more of a, a topic of conversation now just means it gets a few more headlines, a bit more attention, and that, that's what drives conversations. Um, I think, you know, in terms of the, the Me Too era, I, I grew up, all the events in that book take place before that. And, and when I think about my group of mates and, and the men around my age who are kind of grew up with this ideal of masculinity and, and our bonds with each other were formed based around those and then to have this me too era come in and it's you know unavoidable now it's it's unavoidable that there is a need for change and that that change will make lives of a lot of people better but as well what i'm trying to do with my writing is how will it make the, the guys better what what, do, what can we unlock within men so that they see that this is something that's really going to benefit them in a way because the thing we've been handed really does damage us um yeah Having played sport at the, the level you've played it at, would you, hypothetically, if you had a kid or if you knew someone young, would you recommend them to pursue professional sport? Of, of course. I think, um, I, I think sport's beautiful in so many ways in the life lessons it teaches and the sense of camaraderie it can provide. I, you know, when I think about my own upbringing and, and the kind of 
lack of conversation that was had with my parents about what I really wanted to do, or was it to play professionally, or did I just enjoy having a kick around? Um, you know, hypothetically, if, if I have a child and, and um, they enjoy sport, I'd, I'd like to find a balance of, you know, you want to push them to be the best they can, but have an open conversation about, well, do you really want to be doing this, or are you doing this just to please me? And that's something that, you know, something I'll take with me. Well, that brings us to the end of the hour, I believe. Uh, thank you so much for being here, guys, and thank you for being here as well for this session. Uh, please put your hands together for Brandon Jack, Brendan Cowell, and Lech Blaine. Thank you for your time, guys, and they will be signing in the gift shop. If you'd like to make your way down, they'll be down there very shortly. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this session, which was recorded at the 2022 Festival. Save the date for our 10th event, coming up from March 31 to April 2, 2023. Stories to you.